Well, hello and uh, welcome everyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we are, of course, going to be talking about yesterday's historic Moldovan runoff presidential election, uh, for which we have a clear result. Uh, it's a refreshing uh, thing to see that within just a few hours, as opposed to uh, uh, ongoing uncertainty. Uh, and that gives us a chance to have really an, an in-depth discussion about everything that uh, the vote, the process that ran up to it, uh, the candidates, the, the teams that they lead, and the policies that we're likely to see, foreign and domestic, uh, what all of that means. And I truly couldn't be uh, joined by a better panel of experts uh, and practitioners to talk about this. Uh, I will introduce uh, all three of them before they speak. Um, but before I do that, let me just note that you can keep up with uh, all of our events and analysis at the Kennan Institute uh, via our new podcasts, Kennan X and the Russia File, uh, as well as our blogs, The Russia File and Focus Ukraine. Uh, and throughout the course of today's discussion, which I'll try to keep moving along quickly because we've only budgeted just a little more than an hour, uh, you can submit your questions at any time, including right now, if you already know what you want to ask, via email to Kenan, that's K-E-N-N-A-N, -N -N, at wilsoncenter.org. Uh, you can tweet at Kenan Institute, or you can post the questions to our Facebook page. Uh, they will appear in a magic real-time document that I have in front of me. Um, simply just make sure to include your name and affiliation. If you have one, it will make it more likely that I will uh, get your question uh, in front of me and ask it. Um, so without further ado, uh, I'm going to introduce uh, Ambassador Bill Hill, uh, who's a global fellow at the Kennan Institute, um, a former professor of national security strategy at the National War College, uh, and a distinguished former foreign service officer who's an expert on Russia and the former Soviet Union, East-West relations and European multilateral diplomacy. Relevant to our discussion today, especially he served twice as head of the OSCE mission in Moldova uh, from January 2003 to July 2006, and then again from June 1999 to November 2001. Uh, there he was charged with uh, leading negotiations on a political settlement to the Transnistria conflict and facilitating the withdrawal of Russian forces, arms, and ammunition from Moldova. So to lead off on uh, some of the many questions that I posed, uh, and maybe to pose some questions for our other two panelists. Uh, Bill, the floor is yours. Thanks very much, Matt. And thanks very much to Kennan Institute and the Wilson Center for putting on this program. And I'm delighted uh, to be joined by um, former Minister Niku Popescu and uh, Christina Garasimov, two really good analysts and observers of events in Moldova. Uh, yesterday, it was really a, a great victory for uh, Maya Sandu, for her party, uh, the Party of Action and Solidarity, uh, and for pro-integration voters, uh, the, the pop majority of the population in Moldova that favors greater contact with and integration in Europe. Uh, the election was has been set up by many observers and commentators as a geopolitical contest. And so with, with a decisive victory of President-elect Sandu, is this a geopolitical result? Well, perhaps. I mean, in the past, over the past 25 years, there's been a pattern in Moldovan elections uh, where the Moldovan population has been split fairly evenly between left and right, between pro-West pro and pro-Russian population or groups in the population. And um, the results of, of elections have generally been close to 50-50. 
Um, any move too far in one direction or the other has generally produced a, a pretty emphatic popular reaction and a movement back towards the middle or the center uh, or whatever you want to call it. And so while Moldova has been sometimes reputed to be moving towards Moscow and sometimes towards the EU or Brussels, it, it's never gotten fully uh, too far in either direction. The current election had significant domestic issues, which I think we'll all talk about a little bit, but um, it's, it's, it also is geopolitical in a way the, the Russian leadership in pre-election comments by uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, um, you know, head of the National Security Council, Narishkin, and uh, President Putin uh, indicated that Russia saw a stake uh, in the contest in this election. Um, so at least at one point, Moscow, as well as some observers in the West, viewed it that way. That said, um, I think coming out of the election, the, the results are not going to be drastic or, or the results of, of, of the outcome. Uh, and uh, Ms. Sandu, assuming the presidency, are not likely to move too quickly or too dramatically in one direction. Uh, it's, the clear result is certainly going to make it easier for President Sandu to deal with the EU and for the EU to deal with her and with Moldova and to, to cooperate. Um, yet, on the other hand, uh, the Russians have quickly extended an olive branch. Putin sent a fairly you know, decent uh, congratulatory telegram. Uh, Peskov echoed those sentiments. Um, and the Kremlin and Moscow has indicated uh, a readiness to work with the new president. We'll see what comes of that. Um, the, the thing is that there are significant domestic issues here and ongoing domestic problems that may or may not overshadow the geopolitical elements here. There's been continuing popular discontent with poverty, corruption, lack of opportunity um, in Moldova. And this has all been multiplied by the effects of the pandemic over the past eight months with the ineffectual response of Moldova's present leadership. Uh, there's a continuing hope for greater integration in Europe. Um, and I think, at least from what I've heard from at least several friends on the ground in Moldova who worked for her campaign, they attribute uh, the electoral set success to President-elect Sandu moving a bit towards the center and being more inclusive in the campaign and then drawing in groups uh, that did not traditionally support uh, center, center-right candidates or pro-Western candidates. Um, where did this support come from? Well, you have to look within Moldova. Uh, the re result was clear, but considerably less emphatic. Um, Sandu won inside, there were voters inside the country, 52 to 48%. Um, and the, the really large percentage, the 57 to 43% uh, result comes largely from a stunning vote from the Moldovan diaspora, where a quarter of a million Moldovans abroad voted overwhelmingly for President-elect Sandu. I think the result is something like 240,000 to 14,000, just an incredible margin. This has never happened before in the history of Moldovans, Moldovan elections. What it means for the future is something that we're all going to be struggling to understand 
uh, the Don and the socialists got support from the traditional regions, uh, the north of the country, Gagauz, and the south in Gagauzia, from the Transnistrian region, although the margin was not that great. It voted you know, nine to one for Sindhu, but not that many from Transnistria uh, voted. That one of the key elements uh, in the electoral coalition that Sindhu put together was getting uh, Mayor Renato Usati of our, the par our party, uh, Partido Nostro. Uh, Usati is allegedly pro-Russian. Uh, the the uh, mayor of the heavily Russophone second city in Moldova, Bielts, uh, but uh, he actively campaigned against uh, Dodon in the second round and threw his support to Sandu. And it's clear that his city went uh, for Sandu over, uh, Belts went for Sandu over Dadon, which is really unprecedented. That's not what you would expect. Uh, will these forces stay together uh, in the post-election scenario? This, this is an important question because Sandu's victory is only the first step. The government and the parliament are still dominated by the old Democratic Party, post-Plakat Nuke forces uh, or continuing Plakat Nuke forces and by the socialists. And Moldova is more a parliamentary republic than a presidential republic. The president does have significant powers, uh, but they're not decisive. Um, and, and so will this electoral alliance with Usati and others hold? Uh, what will be the fate of the current government? Will there be new elections? Both Sandu and Usati have indicated they will push for early parliamentary elections to try to get a new majority in the parliament and a different, more cooperative government. But this is gonna be crucial because internal questions are really gonna be important in Moldova. Rule of law, judicial reform, the fight against corruption. These are areas in which Moldova recently has continually disappointed its external partners, even you know, the, the pro-Western allegedly pro-Western governments that have been in power in Moldova over a great you know, majority of the past uh, decade. So, so we'll see. Uh, Sandu's victory may indicate a shakeup in Moldova's electoral, uh, electoral pattern, the electoral pattern of the past 25 years. And this could be a good thing because it could allow Moldova also to break out then of this pattern of electing a new pro-reform, pro-European, pro-Western government that then disappoints those who supported it and leads to yet another uh, wave of popular discontent, a new election, uh, a new government, and yet another disappointment. So I, I am hopeful. And uh, I think certainly the scope and nature of this victory holds a promise that we may not have seen for a long time in Moldova. Let's see and let's be hopeful and let's work to help it out. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, uh, Bill. That's a great overview. Uh, I wanna go right to Christina Gerasimov, who's a research fellow at the Robert Bosch Center for Central and Eastern Europe, uh, Russia and Central Asia at the German Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, previously, she worked at Transparency International Defense and Security and at Chatham House with the Russia and Eurasia program. Her expertise includes democratic transitions and institution building in Central and Eastern Europe and post-communist states, European integration, good governance, rule of law, anti-corruption policy, and democratic backsliding. 
uh, other than maybe the last one, that almost sounds like a wish list for the new government, Christina. So uh, interested to hear your take, please. Many thanks, Matthew, and thank you to the Kennan Institute for inviting me to join this uh, discussion. So I think since uh, William Hill started, you know, uh, from the geopolitics of this election, uh, I will let myself this time to start with a value base of this election since Moldovans, you know, don't have too many options or too many occasions to speak about that. And I think it's, a, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's something that uh, we would like to witness more often. So what Moldova saw yesterday was really, you know, a historical vote for dignity and integrity, something that probably many Americans could relate to as well in light of your own elections. And it was also a vote against the current political establishment, against hate speech, a vote against sexism, xenophobia, and division of people along identity lines, such as language and, and ethnicity that we've seen uh, being uh, overwhelmingly used, particularly in the last two weeks. So this victory should be attributed mainly to two groups, the way I see it. One is uh, that of Maya Sandu and her team who worked tirelessly to reach out to every Moldovan inside the country and abroad. And the second group would be the 260K Moldovans who voted abroad despite COVID, despite bad weather, despite the long lines and obstacles to cast their vote freely due to the very long distances many of them had to cross to reach a polling station. So the fact that Maya won this election despite a very denigratory campaign during the last two weeks in particular, um, a lot of viola violations of the electoral law in the pre-electoral campaign, to mention only a few, you know, the intense use of hate speech, widespread disinformation, undeclared electoral financing, and no real swift action by law enforcement authorities to address these, um, which then undercut the level playing field for, for the two candidates. Despite the heavy interference of um, Russian technologists in support of President Odon, uh, the busing of voters from the Transnistrian uh, region and the unusually high numbers of polling stations opened in Russia. I mean, the fact that Maya won this election despite all of these challenges and help that President Odon got should really be treated as a big win for uh, the Moldovan society, which uh, throughout the last four years has partially lost trust in a better future and made tens of thousands of Moldovans leave the country. It is also one of the first positive developments, I would say, in the region for a long time now. And this brings some hope after a series of developments that raise serious questions about the region's future political and geopolitical landscape. So what does this runoff election result tell us? Um, polls published in the run-up of the election showed that uh, Maya Sandu and President Odon uh, would be in a tight race uh, that was to be decided by the diaspora, um, which voted massively in the first round for Maya Sandu, uh, around 70%. In 2016, what we saw was something very similar in terms of risks, and Dodon defeated Sando by less than five percentage points in an election that was marred by allegations uh, of fraud. So the key battlegrounds, again, you know, this year uh, were expected to be the vote of the diaspora and the vote from the Transnistrian region. Um, so the risks involved around these voter groups uh, have mobilized people inside and outside the country to maximize the chances 
to avoid a repeated scenario of 2016. Um, the diaspora, like uh, William Hill has also mentioned, mobilized like never before for the first round. Uh, this level of mobilization was already unexpectedly high. Um, in the second round, it reached 16% of the total vote. Um, but this also tells us, uh, you know, in the absence of official statistics, how many people left the country in the last four years in the search of a better future. And for those who voted for uh, Maya Sandu from abroad, 50% were young people between depending how you categorize young people, uh, between 25 and 40 uh, years old, and 25% were basically between 41 and 55. So we see you know, the whole labor force basically being abroad and voting massively uh, for, uh, for uh, Maya uh, Sandu. In the second round, the mobilization could have been also caused by a remark of President Dodon that the diaspora lives in a parallel world, which uh, has anchored a lot of people. Um, he also did not realize making this mistakes, uh, mistake until uh, a few days later, but at that time it was already too late because this has been then used by the diaspora to mobilize uh, those who did not vote in the first round. And to quickly refer to the Transnistrian region vote, because uh, 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 Bill has already uh, referred to that a bit as well. We did see fraud there, we cannot deny it, but in smaller scale than many have expected. Um, out of the 31,000 who cast their vote, uh, around 85% were for President Dodon. But I think the attention that was raised over the Transnistrian votes and their possible manipulation left a very narrow space for maneuver for, for President Dodon. Dodon also you know, lost inside the country with much bigger difference in votes than most experts expected. Therefore, the Transnistrian votes in this case did not count as much as they did last time when the margin of his victory was much smaller. So Dodon lost inside the country, he lost the vote in the capital, he lost the vote, vote abroad, which doesn't make him a very good leader of the Socialist Party in the near future. Maya got in the diaspora 93% of the votes. Think what this means for democratic context, not a dictatorial one. And I think what is also equally shameful for Dodon personally, because he has used these arguments against Maya, um, is that he also lost to a woman, he lost to a single woman, and he also lost to a woman who yet has no children. These are his words that he used against her. And I think this is a, you know, a big thing for him because I hope this teaches many populists and machos of his kind to be careful with such words, with such narrative in future electoral campaigns because they might backfire pretty badly. So what does this mean for the near future? And try to be very short here, um, you know, expectations from Maya's presidency are very high. Uh, these are shaped by a disastrous domestic context, no management of the COVID uh, pandemic whatsoever, no meaningful support for the economy, for the vulnerable people who have been hit very hard by the current situation, but also you know, by the rampant corruption that drained the state budget for the last five years at least. Moreover, as it has already been mentioned, Moldova is a parliamentary republic, something that uh, President Dodon remembered this morning and also reminded everyone else in his press statement. 
but the president has also somewhat disbalanced high legitimacy because uh, he or she is elected directly by the people rather than, than by the parliament. So the president's powers stay mostly in the realm of foreign security policy, and that's where uh, President-elect Santo could uh, uh, have a difference. Domestically, she has a say in appointing judges, prosecutors, ambassadors, high-level appointees. She can raise to the parliament issues related to the functioning of the state, the judicial reform that she will definitely do. But ultimately, it is upon a functioning government and legislative support in the parliament to help implement uh, the changes that she envisions, which at the moment she badly misses. So therefore, we need to you know, employ this cautious optimist about what optimism, about what we can expect from I in the next uh, years. What we will definitely see on the bright side uh, to finish here is much more international support, uh, more open doors for cooperation internationally and from our direct neighbors, something that Moldova has lagged behind under Dodon's four-year rule with a small intermission during the Sandu government last year. And I will stop here for now. Thanks very much, Christina. Um, let me remind uh, those listening in, if you'd like to ask a question, email it to Kenan at wilsoncenter.org, uh, tweet at Kenan Institute, or post on our Facebook page, and please include your name and affiliation uh, when sending questions. So uh, we've gotten plenty of questions in, but I just want to encourage you uh, if anybody has any others. Um, we've, we've sort of danced around geopolitics and foreign policy, but of course, Christina accurately said, uh, this is the principal role of the president. Uh, and so I want to turn to my old friend, Nico Popescu, who is, of course, uh, a former Minister of Foreign Affairs and European Integration of Moldova, currently Director of the Wider Europe Program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's also previously worked as a Senior Analyst at the EU Institute for Security Studies, uh, a Senior Advisor on Foreign Policy to Moldova's Prime Minister, a Senior Research Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations London Office, and a Research Fellow at the Center for European Policy Studies in Brussels. Um, with all those senior titles, you wouldn't even believe how young Niku actually is. Uh, he teaches at Sciences Po in, in Paris, uh, making him one of those Moldovans abroad that we've been talking about. Uh, and he is the author of EU Foreign Policy and Post-Soviet Conflicts, Stealth Intervention, and co-editor of Democratization and EU Foreign Policy, published in 2015. So Niku, uh, with that out of the way, what's going to happen now with Moldova's foreign policy and relations with the rest of the world? Thanks a lot. Uh, just very briefly, so that we have time for a conversation. Um, I think it's really important to remind everyone that Moldova is the only post-Soviet country where all changes of power happened through elections. I think that's hugely important uh, to remember. Uh, this is a kind of regular democratic exercise. There's lots of imperfect things, but uh, several times uh, leaders in Moldova have tried to assert authoritarian rule and that failed. And those attempts failed not through revolutions, not through bloodshed, but through elections. So I'm very positive from one election to another as to how relatively sophisticated and relatively mature is the Moldovan electorate giving the country's GDP per capita and relatively short history of democratic uh, rule and governance. On the foreign policy front, uh, Moldova is in a very difficult geopolitical context. We've seen just recent events, how difficult that context is. Uh, the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, the stalled reform process in Ukraine, protests in Belarus. Um, you know, that's a very complicated 
environment in which Moldova operates. At the same time, I'm optimistic in the sense that Moldova is going and is living through this environment with several good cards. Now, William Hill refers a lot to the way you know, Moldovan politics uh, is divided and Moldovan politicians have changed between rather pro-Russian, rather pro-Western, this roughly 50-50 split when, it look, when you look at the foreign policy uh, preferences of the electorate, and that's all true. But besides that, and on top of that or beneath that, there have been several structural changes happening in Moldova. And I'll just throw in some statistics. Last year, Moldova exported 65 of its exports went to the European Union, 9% went to the Russian market. Uh, in August, just what, three months ago, Moldova has been connected to the European Union's gas market by finalizing the building of a gas pipeline, which has been prepared and has been, you know, the pipeline was in the pipeline for several years, but now it's a real fact. It's a real hard piece of hardware uh, for the first time in Moldova's history, allowing Moldova to buy potentially gas from the West in case should it need to. I'll give you another kind of statistics. Many Moldova watchers know uh, that Moldova is, has been famous for its wine export and Moldova has been hugely dependent on wine exports, especially to the Ru uh, Russian market for decades, not just years. The statistics for last year is that Moldova has exported um, wine worth 170 million lei to Romania, 150 to China and 110 to Russia. So Russia buys less Moldovan wine than China does. Russia buys roughly as much wine as the Czech Republic. What do all these factors mean? They mean that despite this political division on the popular level, Moldova has been day by day more and more integrated in the economy, in the, into the European economy, which allows Moldova a much higher degree of resilience in the face of external economic pressures than is the case for many other countries, including Georgia or Ukraine. This kind of economic statistics also forced formally pro-Russian politicians like Dodon to accept the association agreement, the deep, free, deep and comprehensive free trade area with the European Union and not do anything of in substantial to really connect Moldova to the Eurasian Union. So Dodon spoke a lot about it, but he couldn't do anything because Moldovan trade dependencies did not allow for that. So in this sense, despite the kind of changing and shifting pendulum on the political level over the years, Moldova has been gradually increasingly and irreversibly being more and more tied to Europe. Um, Russia, the relation, relations with Russia will be uh, complex, um, but what we've been seeing and William Hill um, uh, underlined that my, my sound explicitly ran a campaign which was as centrist as possible on foreign policy and is open and very open to Russian speakers in Moldova. So she made sure to campaign to lead a part of her campaign in Russia. She's been to Gagauzia several times in the last year. She did an explicit uh, attempt to reach out to those sections of the Moldovan electorate uh, and her line on Russia has been very open. It was it's her desire to bring Moldova closer to the European Union, but do her best to retain good, respectful, healthy relations with Russia. Why would they be so? For several reasons, many, most of you probably know, Moldova is a neutral state since 1994. So technically the issue of 
um, non-accession to NATO in the case of Moldova is not and should not be an irritant in relations with Russia as they were in the case of Georgia, Ukraine, that offers some decentish parameters to, to future cooperation with Russia. That's the hope. Of course, it will depend on Russia to a large extent if this offer of pragmatic and respectful interaction will you know, determine relations in the future or not, we will see. Uh, but as I said, Moldova has a geography and um, a degree of economic resilience that allows Moldova a decentish room for maneuver in foreign policy. And this room for maneuver, I would claim is bigger than pretty much of any other post-Soviet uh, state. I'll probably stop here. Thank you very much, Niku. Um, so we've gotten a bunch of questions in from the audience. Don't hesitate. Uh, you're welcome to send in more. I'm, I'm probably going to group, uh, group some of them together. Uh, but I do want to start with my own question. Uh, I was talking with some colleagues this morning and, and promised that we wouldn't just do the classic Washington geopolitical questions. And so I want to go right back to you, Christina. Um, and I want to talk about the expectations that voters had um, across the board, and also the ways in which maybe the expectations of those who flipped, uh, whether they flipped their support from Usati to uh, Sandu, or uh, maybe they, they voted for Dodon, but they're not, you know, pouring out in the streets uh, because they hate Sandu. Um, the expectations of people who might otherwise be viewed as obstacles to Sandu's agenda. How, how is she likely to be able to manage those uh, so that we don't see what I feel like is kind of the classic political cycle of disappointed expectations and then the pendulum kind of swinging back and forth, even setting aside the geopolitics. Um, I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Thank you, Matthew. Um, so if we look at uh, the voting patterns, we will see that Gagawuzia still voted for Dodon, so no big change or, uh, you know, uh, pendulum swings there. Transnistrians voted for Dodon, the northern part of Moldova voted for Dodon. Uh, but then the rest, we saw this yellow, you know, uh, uh, patch there that voted for for, for Sandu. It's very difficult to, to say who exactly switched. So. Uh, um, it's um, we, what we saw in the in the polls uh, just before the, the the election is that there were about 30 to 35 percent of undecided voters, and I think what was different about this campaign that could have mobilized part of them, could have mobilized part of the electorate who gave their votes, you know, for Usate or for other candidates uh, from the first round, is literally her reach out to unite uh, the, uh, the electorate. So we saw messages uh, in uh, Gagauzian, we saw messages tailored to the youth, we saw messages tailored to the elderly. And I think what she tried to offer is what unites all of them. And these challenges are literally, you know, related to the actual domestic context. No one is taking care or providing a plan for recovery out of the uh, of the pandemic, uh, something that turned out to be a disaster and actually played against President Dodon. Uh, she's trying to, you know, uh, reassure the population that she would be able to provide some kind of economic uh, uh, support to the most vulnerable social groups, but also economic, group, economic groups such as the uh, SMEs. 
Um, and she's also very much, you know, uh, um, orienting her message towards the, the, the diaspora, uh, many of who are still ready to come back if, if, uh, if there was such an opportunity. Uh, in terms of, you know, how much disappointment there could be in the future by not really addressing their needs or their expectations, I think they're quite high, you know, with only looking at the diaspora with 93% of support uh, there, um, I think there will be disappointed people, but that's something that we cannot avoid. Still, I think the platform that she offered in these elections was much more unifying, much more pacifying, um, uh, and much more hopeful and reassuring uh, in comparison to the to the other candidates. Let me ask, thank you very much, Christina. Let me um, ask uh, Bill, if I can, a, a, another quick follow-up question. Um, you know, Russia has been mentioned. I think Romania would. I heard the word Romania once, um, but it, it it has been common, or at least uh, has happened in the history of uh, Moldovan presidential elections, that uh, you know the Romanian Moldovan vote plays a significant role. Sometimes uh, Romanian politicians uh, will seek to influence things. Um, what was the the Romanian dimension of this entire story? Is there one, and then and and how does that change now that Sandu has won? Well, I think, you know, it, it was relatively small. I mean, Romania has its own political problems and has its own election coming up. And there is a pretty serious fight going on in Romania about corruption um, and governance right now that, that has Romanian politicians busy at home. But Romania did, you know, I mean, is supportive of Moldova and of, of the, the directions that Maya Sandu and, and the party PAS represent. Um, whether they've been effective is another question. We don't really have time I, you know, to debate. Uh, I would leave it just that I saw an announcement today. I, I, uh, I believe that, that um, uh, President Johannes is going to be the first foreign leader invited to Moldova once uh, President Alexandru is inaugurated. So uh, there is a connection. There is a lot that Romania can do. As, as uh, you know, Nico Popescu mentioned, there's, there's the pipeline through, you know, into Ungain that, that's got to be filled with gas. It gets working. It gives Moldova some options. There are other things uh, that Romania can do, but it's, 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 it's not a magic bullet. And I've found that the attitudes, uh, well, I'll just leave it there. It, it, it's something where, you know, Romania could be more effective and a good relationship can be very helpful, but it's not automatic. And despite the fact that they speak the same language, they are two different countries. And if you live, you live there in, in both of them, as I have, you find that out fairly quickly. Um, I, I'm going to uh, abuse my uh, moderator's prerogative one more time for Nico and ask about relations with Ukraine. Uh, it seems to me Ukraine, uh, thanks to COVID, uh, you know, thanks to uh, a, a still going conflict in the East, although, you know, thankfully with a ceasefire. Uh, and then, of course, the, the phenomenon of Zelensky, who has already been compared uh, with Sandu and social media, um, sometimes favorably, sometimes unfavorably. Uh, do you have any sense of what that relationship would look like between the two leaders, but also the ways in which, you know, two societies seeking to undertake reform, 
seeking to maybe kind of minimize the geopolitical impacts on their domestic development. Um, how, how do those two stories relate from your perspective, Nikur? Uh They do relate very well and they've already in intersected uh, last year. So the story is also, you actually, if you look at the previous presidency of the Don, he's never had any kind of proper official interaction with either Romania or, or Ukraine. He never visited these capitals as, as a president and he never received any visits. He was in a kind of complete isolation from Bucharest and Kiev for very specific reasons. Um, uh, and he's tried to break out from that isolation and it didn't work. Uh, now, uh, in this sense, it will be not very easy, not very difficult to, to have a major improvement on a relationship that, that was uh, deeply frozen with, with Kiev. Now, uh, Maya Sandu has been to Kiev as prime minister in July, just basically weeks after uh, Zelensky was elected and weeks after uh, she became prime minister. I was in that visit. They actually established an excellent personal relationship. Uh, it was going very well, you know, there were even things that uh, Moldova needed fixing in its relationship with Ukraine, and there was a small kind of detail, but by the time we landed back in Chisinau in mid-July last year, that, uh, that governmental decree that we needed from Ukraine was signed by the Ukrainian Prime Minister. So there, there was a huge amount of practical goodwill from Ukraine to, to Maya Sandu personally. Uh, so uh, now we're looking into picking up that relationship from where it was left. Uh, so there is bound to be a positive cooperation on several economic fronts. Uh, there will be conversations about how to manage the Transnistrian dossier and file, and that's a delicate one, but Ukraine has been very supportive of the Moldovan approach to that in, in the last years. And there are some complicated bilateral issues, like there's, a, you know, Ukraine building some water dams on, on River Nistru, but they are you know, you can, you can uh, overcome these problems if, if you have the political will to do that. Well, uh, thank you, all three of you. I want to get to some of our many, many audience questions. Um, and let me ask one. We, we have uh, three related questions from uh, Vlad Lupan, uh, former Moldovan ambassador to the UN, uh, as well as uh, from Ron Bookbinder uh, and from uh, John Todd Stewart, who was uh, US ambassador to Moldova from 95 to 98. So the questions basically have to do with uh, an early parliamentary election. Uh, how would it be legal to, to hold a snap election uh, given the prohibition on doing so within six months uh, of a presidential election? Uh, if it were to happen either before or after that timeline, uh, would Sandu be able to repeat this uh, performance? In other words, uh, take a majority or a significant uh, plurality in the parliament. Uh, and in general, how do you assess uh, the, the prospects, let's say, for uh, united or divided government? Who wants to take that? Don't be shy. Christina, you're smiling, so you win. I'm smiling because I'm not a lawyer <laughs> and I'm not able to say, you know, from a legal perspective, uh, how feasible that is. But what I could say is that indeed, uh, we have seen and heard, you know, an express interest from several parties to hold snap elections. Um, and uh, I, even today, we heard that also from the Democratic Party that they would be interested uh, in, 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 in snap elections. Um, so um, this is seen 
as of now by a group of, of, of uh, uh, political forces as the only way to move forward from the stalemate that is currently created and the very fragile um, uh, majority that the socialists uh, still uh, uh, hold in, in, in the parliament. So from this perspective, I think that there is, uh, there is interest. Uh, it's a matter of uh, discussions and negotiations. And of course, the legal, uh, the legal aspect here is, is also very um, important. Um, I will maybe give the you know word to, to Niku, but from again you know from a legal perspective, I'm not able to to add more here. Go ahead, Niku, please. Listen, I'm, I there is no easy answer. To be my very personal expectation is that in the short term, there will be a consolidation in the parliament uh, against Maya Sando. Uh, there's too many people and political parties that will not find themselves in the next parliament. So uh, the survival instinct of too many MPs is now at stake. At the same time, in, uh, in the last uh, one year and a few days, that's technically we're facing the fourth parliamentary majority. The socialists were in all of them, but, but this is the fourth majority in, in more or less a year. Uh, so I don't expect this short-term consolidation on an anti-Maya Sandu platform in the parliament to last for long. Um, and at some point uh, down the road, there will be uh, some openings to reset the political system. There's also many people, Maya Sandu is on the record saying that she would want to have a new parliament that is more representative. Uh, of course, that can only be done in a legal manner. But there's also other uh, players, if you want, probably, I suspect, in the Socialist Party that might um, make, might benefit from a resetting of their own party. And I'd like to draw a parallel here. Before in Moldova, you had corrupt pro-Europeans. Uh, Maya Sandu distanced herself and built uh, a not corrupt pro-European political force and won. If the Moldovan Socialist Party and the Moldovan left can do the same, shed those leaders who have been very credibly seen in very corrupt circumstances, that would, that's something that would benefit the Socialist Party and Moldovan politics as a whole if Moldovan political parties are corrupt. So uh, there's people like that in the Socialist Party as well. They also might have an interest to try and reset and move on from um, that phase of cooperation where the Socialist Party became, you know, an annex to Plachotniuk and to corrupt interests. Uh, that doesn't give you a legal answer, but what I'm <laughs> telling you is if Moldovan politics teaches us anything is that yesterday the Don still has a majority in parliament that's a shaky majority, it's a weak majority, it depends on several independent MPs. And I would be extremely surprised if that, that shaky majority lasts for long or allows for uh, a clear cut, uh, you know, for a lot of uh, decision-making power uh, for the outgoing president. Now, it's a really good point, uh, Nico, that in some ways the lesson uh, from Sandu might be learned by people from within the socialist camp, uh, that they can split off and they can repeat this kind of success, uh, especially uh, by campaigning against corruption. Um, Bill, you're, you're welcome to jump in on, on this topic uh, as well, but I also wanted to bring in a question about Transnistria, if I can. Um, Paul Nicholson, a professor of history uh, emeritus from Huntington University, is asking if the Transnistria conflict 
uh, is going to continue to be frozen. Uh, I've never been a big fan of that term, but uh, his term, or do you think it will make its way back onto the Moldovan uh, political agenda? Well, it, thanks, Matt. It's, it's never been frozen and it's never been off the political agenda, but it's it, frankly in Moldovan electoral politics, it's not at the top of the, uh, it hasn't been at the top of the agenda for a long time. As a former negotiator, I knew that when I was there, that it was, uh, there are other things that go into that. Um, it, it, Transnistria has basically, the authorities in Transnistria have entrenched themselves um, and they are part of a separate, de facto separate entity, but they are entrenched in the political, economic and social system of the region. Uh, with and without cooperation from influential people in Moldova proper, in Romania and Ukraine, Transnistria would not survive. You know, it also requires Russian support. Uh, but the, you know, it's it's a significant part of the overall economic pattern uh, that has developed in in the region and and been going on for the uh, past twenty five years or more. Uh, Transnistria has also become uh, now participating in the DCFTA, uh, a great deal of its trade having reoriented or gone back as it was semi-legally in the 1990s, gone back to Western Europe, European Union countries. Transnistria is a large part of the Moldovan economic and, and legal economic space. The political questions are not solved and they may take some time to resolve, but it's one where the, the, it, it's not the most important issue, certainly hasn't been to Moldovan voters and Moldovan pop, populations. Uh, to the previous question, the one thing I just wanted to add was that I, I would, it may turn out to be unimportant, it may turn out to be transitory, but I'm struck by the role that Usati played in this result and the potential if he stays uh, as a charismatic figure. Uh, whether he's a populist or not, I don't know. He's a mysterious figure because he appeared in 2014. There's a mysterious, but in this election, it's an important, it's an, he played an important role. And the fact that uh, Sangu and the past took belts is um, a, it's, it's another striking result. It's not as important as the participation of the diaspora, but it shows a sign for Moldovan politics, uh, you know, getting shaken up. Uh, and for, you know, the fact they might have to wait for six months for snap elections, but when the snap elections come, uh, uh, the electoral calculus may be very, very different for the polit politicians taking part that could lead to a very different result. In Moldova, of course, the, the those political leaders working in Moldova now have to—they uh, actually have to do this. They have to undertake the actions and negotiations and make the deals uh, themselves. But there's an avenue open here that wasn't during a large part of the time that I've been both working in Moldova and living in Moldova. So, interesting times, interesting possibilities. Let me uh, let me mention uh, the Voldemortian figure of. Uh, Moldovan politics, he who shall not be named, uh, Vlad Plahatniuk. Um, you know, it's interesting how, how little uh, corruption and vote buying and sort of typical oligarch games uh, were part of this story. Uh, is that because he's on the run? Um, I mean, what 
what is the, the Plachet Nuke dimension of Moldovan politics today, and especially in the wake of this victory? Is it cleansing? Uh, or, you know, again, and here I, I think about the comparison with Ukraine, inevitably, uh, you know, do, are we going to see kind of an inevitable return to a center of gravity that is very much about that kind of oligarch story? Christina, again, you, you have the smile and the nod, so I'll go to you. Uh, sure, Matt. Uh, so my take on this is that it would very much depend on the evolutions within the political parties in Moldova. So for now, we see really a window of opportunity also for the socialists in a way to change perspectives, to change behavior, to change patterns in, in Moldovan politics. It will very much depend, you know, whether Dodon stays a central figure since he is in quest for a new immunity umbrella, or is it going to be, you know, given to someone else considering his loss of legitimacy after this uh, election round. So a lot of, um, you know, part of the answer on whether or to what extent Plachotniuk comes back to Moldovan politics depends on the the reshape of the of the uh, of the of the party's behavior. What we do know is that he is behind several political forces in the Moldovan Parliament today. So he's not keeping, uh, in a way, his eggs in one uh, basket. Uh, um, that would uh, also uh, tell us that there is an interest to return. We see that being abroad and moving from one country to another is not uh, that uh, sustainable for him. So we might see more of him coming back. Um, it also depends, you know, on how uh, the, 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 the parties on the right spectrum uh, are going to evolve, how much leverage they will have on politics and how much they would be able to uh, uh, form a strong uh, uh, coalition against uh, more corrupt parties and more corrupt behavior. So from this perspective, I would say, yes, there is a huge opportunity for uh, Plachotniuk to, to return, but probably in a very different uh, form uh, than uh, he used to dominate the, the Moldovan politics uh, prior to last summer. Any, anyone else want to comment on Baca? No, I don't see any any eagerness there. Okay, so uh, let me. I, we have plenty more questions from the audience. Let me uh, pull a couple more of those in. Um, Robert H. Uh, Lofter Thun, uh, CEO of Eco Catalyst Foundation, asks: How would you characterize the impact of youth and civil society in the Moldova presidential election? Great question. Who wants to tackle that? Christina, go ahead, please. You guys are, you guys are too deferential, uh, or maybe you're just tired. <laughs> Probably tiredness as well. Um, so when it comes to civil society and youth, as I have mentioned, um, especially the diaspora abroad has mobilized a very um, sizable uh, chunk of uh, them abroad. These are mostly students, these are people who finished their studies and did not find any kind of professional opportunities in the country and decided to uh, to leave. So here we do see that the, the, the youth has significantly mobilized. Civil society, I think today, plays the role of a watchdog uh, over uh, Moldovan politics. And they're also helping mobilize uh, the, the electorate within the country to understand what's going on and to understand what are the stakes 
uh, in this election and what uh, what comes uh, next. So I think you know the degree of mobilization mobilization that we've seen is very much also um, a result of uh, how active the civil society was uh, to explain what happened during the pre-electoral campaign, to explain the risks during you know, the, the day of the election and to explain what kind of risks might come after. So from this perspective, hats off uh, uh, the, you know, in, in, in front of the civil society organizations and think tanks that made sure to raise awareness about uh, what's going on and what's at stake here. Nico, I want to ask you a follow up on that, if I can. I mean, look, you you came from civil society. You served in a government with Maya Sandu as prime minister. Um, is she going to be building that sort of technocratic uh, government again, drawing on civil society, working in partnership with civil society? Again, to point to Ukraine, one could argue that that has been one of the missed opportunities of Ukraine is kind of animosity and distance between the government and civil society. Absolutely, Maya has been very closely supported by uh, much of what is, you know, is civil society in Moldova, precisely because she's been someone who is very democratic, has always been very pluralistic in her treatment of, you know, political opponents and supporters. Now, the impact of civil society and, and youth has been very big, but has been also very different. I think in Moldova, you have a very good, you have several very partisan media. Um, many of them are Russian media with a lot of influence in the Moldovan debate, but you have several very good independent TV channels, which have meant that for the last 10 years, Moldova has had a very pluralist political space. Uh, you have a very active uh, civil society, which is highly qualified. Uh, it's partly because Moldova doesn't have a very kind of dynamic economy, because actually the, the hard truth is that if you're someone who's very competent uh, and and um, and well-educated, if you're in Azerbaijan or Ukraine or Russia, chances are many of these people end up in big businesses, in oil, in, you know, in Moldova, actually some of the best educated Moldovans uh, go into NGOs um, and, and, and politics as well. So, but actually you have a kind of vacuum effect uh, to a degree uh, in Moldovan NGOs. So you have a very dynamic, very active civil society, which has a huge impact on, on the political debate in the country. Um, and yep. you have a good revolving door, as you can see. You know. <laughs> uh, actually, on that, Moldova is also quite good on having a revolving door and a pretty high degree of influence of civil society on the political process. And that has been the case for quite some time. You know, when you have 30 NGOs making statements on Transnistria or on relations with the EU, all governments listen. And that has been used as a leverage several times in Moldovan history to to, to put pressure on the government, and that usually has an effect. Nico, I, I like to joke that you're the guy who gives the revolving door, which has such a bad reputation in Washington, and labor migration, which also has a bad re reputation. You give it a good name. Bill, I want to go to you for this, please. Matt, yeah, no, I wanted to say, following on what Christina and Nico said, is uh, not to, you know, I, I, both to applaud the contribution of civil society in Moldova, but one of the things, the result of this uh, election un, uh, and the participation in this election underlines 
is a substantial proportion of Moldovan civil society, especially the younger part of Moldovan civil society, is abroad. If you look at the numbers that participated in Romania, France, Germany, uh, Italy, Great Britain, uh, just thousands and thousands of young Moldovans over the past two decades have left Moldova because of lack of opportunity, uh, lack of space, uh, other things. If you travel, uh, live in Moldova, travel around in the countryside through towns and villages, you see the effects uh, on the country of the absence of so much talented, uh, young, uh, working power. Uh, in this election, these people working, in, these Moldovans working, in, especially in Central and Western Europe, elsewhere too, but especially in Central and Western Europe, have shown a continuing interest and participation in Moldovan civic and political life. Uh, and hopefully, this you know, one of the things that matters in the future of Moldovan society and the economy is, is the fact of re bringing some of these Moldovans back to Moldova and getting them to work in Moldova uh, because society is so thin on the ground in the working age population. And in this sense, the, the fact that these people are still have feel a connection to Moldova, care about it enough to participate, uh, you know, perhaps this is a step in, in turning around a phenomenon that has, has really been one of the the sources of Moldova's continuing ills over the past two decades. This won't happen all at once, but in this sense, this is one of the encouraging aspects that I see of this election and something that's new that we haven't seen before and could, if it goes in a good direction, contribute to a much brighter future for this country, which is deserving. And I'll say one other thing. I mean, Nico has pointed to this, this is a country that once again, every election in Moldova, since the first ones in the early 1990s when Moldova got independence, uh, they've not always been perfect, they've, but they've been competitive, they've been free, they've been open, and Moldovan political parties, Moldovan political forces have respected the results. Not too many countries in the world have a record as good as this uh, in holding elections and observing their results. And as such, uh, it's a country that's deserving of whatever support from the outside can be given uh, to keep this record up and to help those who voted for change actually realize it in Moldova. I, I actually want to pick up on that last point about support from the outside for a final question for all three of you. We have basically steered clear of uh, as has Moldova uh, thus far of the kind of classic geopolitical ping pong uh, story. My question though is, is to put a, a bit of a finer point maybe on, on the difficulty, which is um, one might expect in uh, the incoming US administration uh, with its enthusiasm for democracy promotion, uh, a lot of people uh, potentially coming in that have experience with the region are very committed to the region. Uh, one might expect a massive upgrade in attention and maybe uh, development assistance and democracy assistance coming to the region. I'm, I'm curious what you think about that, but I'm also interested to, to know if you, if you see any kind of resolution for kind of the classical problem, which is the more of that kind of engagement 
from the West and especially from the United States that a country in Moldova's position gets, the more it is perceived by Russia and by forces uh, domestically that align themselves with Russia as threatening some type of uh, you know, escape, right? Escape from uh, Russia's uh, geopolitical orbit, from an economic relationship with Russia, uh, from uh, a neutral status, which uh, Nico mentioned earlier is enshrined in Moldova's constitution, et cetera. I mean, if there is a perceived upgrade from where we are now, which is I think pretty limited in terms of US uh, assistance under the Trump administration in the next administration, is it also necessarily going to trigger more of a geopolitical problem with Russia? So it's kind of a cluster of questions uh, about the geopolitics. Who, who might want to take that on? I will probably. Go ahead, go ahead, Nico. Um, listen, I think US engagement and support for Moldova has been quite systematic. It did not change a lot from one administration to another in the last decade. Uh, so there haven't been huge variations. Usually the US is very engaged. It has supported many NGOs, uh, independent media, both offering them diplomatic help when these media found themselves under pressure from various governments in Moldova, and that happened a few times. And there has been financial support. Uh, maintaining that the Europeans have done the same. Uh, the European Endowment for Democracy is an important player in this field. And that's been happening nonstop for more than 20 years. Uh, I don't see why this should pose a problem for Russia. Uh, if you want, I don't want to kind of over uh, think and over interpret what, what Russia might be thinking. But of course, uh, all of this type of assistance for civil society in Moldova has been happening nonstop for the last 25 years. It's not and if it would suddenly start happening on a much more massive scale in other post-Soviet countries, be it Belarus or be it Armenia, we've seen and we've heard voices in Moscow that could be itchy about that. Uh, well, in Moldova, that's standard practice. Moldova has an open political space. Uh, it's been there. It's been open to close partnership with the US, uh, with you know, with Russia, relations tended to, Moldova usually tried to go out of its way to maintain that relationship stable. It not, didn't always work, uh, but Moldov, Moldovan leaders almost never engaged in uh, hostile rhetoric against Russia. I also mentioned also the neutrality status of Moldova, which is an explicit Moldovan decision from the early nineties to uh, remove this issue of military alliances from potentially troubling uh, relations with Moscow. So Moldova has done its bits of not of avoiding a hostile. So I don't see this as a zero sum game, um, if you ask me, and I don't see why Russia should uh, significantly. But I'd also like to draw your attention to some recent facts uh, or you know serious allegations of, of Russian interference. This has happened. Uh, the last weeks we've had independent NGOs and journalists chasing in town uh, Russian uh, political consultants who have not been declared in the party in the political spending of the of the Socialist Party, which amounts to illegal external financing of a campaign. Uh, we've had this situation. Uh, President Dodon is himself uh, boasted on a, on a leaked video that he receives cash monthly from Russia. We also have that situation, right? Uh, which unfortunately significantly imbalances the capacity of the Moldovan political parties to have a fair 
campaign. And despite that huge asymmetry in resources between the socialists and the other political parties, still the socialists lost. So that also tells you a lot about the efficiency of such interventions. If you ask me, they've mostly complicated, um, uh, you know, Russia's capacity to have a normal and constructive relationship with a country like Moldova. If I were one of these Russian political consultants, I would not put this campaign on my marketing page. But uh, I guess they'll continue to spin their own narrative. Uh, Christina, do you want to comment on this and, and also any final thoughts you might have? Uh, sure. So I will try to build a little bit on what Nico has just mentioned. I, I fully agree, you know, that Moldova, since its independence, uh, in a way, enjoyed support for its democratic transition, um, its efforts in uh, fighting corruption, uh, and, you know, in, in its ambitions in a way to, to get closer to, 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 to Europe and once uh, part of the EU uh, family. So from this perspective, uh, the EU, the IMF and other similarly, you know, organizations uh, have in a way supported uh, Moldova. We did see a reduction from uh, during the, the Trump administration, but I think, um, you know, we could, I, my expectations considering how full the foreign policy agenda of uh, uh, President-elect Biden will be, uh, particularly in the first one year to, you know, uh, redo uh, all the connections that have been damaged uh, with uh, the EU and with major global uh, players, uh, Moldova will be by far uh, not uh, even, you know, among its pool of smaller countries, a, a, a priority, but it will probably enjoy support in the context of more interest and uh, uh, um, more interest for, for democracy promotion. Um, here I would just like to, to add uh, the, the Russian perspective a bit. I mean, what we have seen in this campaign is, you know, a portrayal of um, Western support um, um, as uh, an expectation of a Maidan for Moldova. Uh, we've seen also in the Russian narrative that, uh, you know, in case of a Sandu win, we might see a lot of uh, pressure being put on on on, uh, on on Russia. So we see we saw a lot of disinformation that was trying to. Uh, disorient uh, the the ordinary uh, voter um, out there, um, but uh, we also saw the message of President Putin, um, uh, who's expecting a working relationship uh, with uh, with uh, Maya Sandu. So from this perspective, um, I think there is also clear pragmatism on behalf of Moscow that there is not much to to worry. So to jump back now, uh, back to the you know Moldova. Of U.S. relations, I think it's very, it's also a matter of how much will there is to engage on the Moldovan side with the support that comes from the U.S. Uh, rather than unilaterally the other side, uh, uh, the other way around. So um, to, to finish here, I would just say that um, uh, from, from, uh, from an assistance perspective, I mean, the United States has provided since independence over one and a half billion uh, dollars 
dollars for Moldova. It currently provides around 25 million uh, per year for strengthening economic growth, competitiveness, uh, you know, the work on reforms to improve the business climate, the developing democratic governance. If, if you know, the Moldovan society could absorb this money, I would say, yes, we should worry uh, that there is not more coming. But uh, for now, I think we're good. Um, so I'll stop just here. Yeah, thank you very much for that, both Nico and Christina. And, and I didn't mean to imply that the, you know, the relationship had disappeared over the last four years. In fact, uh, I was very pleased to see the photo of uh, John Bolton and Niku uh, during Bolton's, uh, as National Security Advisor, his visit to Chisinau. So, uh, that may, that may not be a high level visit that's repeated soon, or it may be, um, but certainly it was significant. Bill, you have the final word. Any thoughts on on this, or anything else you'd like to close with? Uh, okay, thanks, Matt. No, I, I wouldn't exclude that a new administration uh, would not pay significant attention to Moldova. I mean, the U.S. has a lot of things to deal with, but we also were a big country and we have a lot of capabilities and, and we should be able to do a number of things. I think that the important thing in the, in the geopolitical issues, the, the geopolitical calculus, we, we don't need to pursue reorientation. Uh, I, I think the election shows the Moldovan population knows where it's going and continued support from the US for existing efforts such as rule of law, judicial reform, uh, economic development, infrastructure building um, should be not uncontroversial and very helpful in, in assisting a new Moldovan president, and at some point, a, a further Moldovan government move in the direction that the population wants to. That this is something, and uh, it, it's something that that should not uh, provoke others that are involved in Moldova. Um, we can seek to work constructively with Moscow and just make it up to Moscow whether they accept that invitation. Uh, and offer to do so. It, it has worked in the past, over the past five years, in certain things in, involving Moldova and Transnistria. There's no reason why it can't work in the future. That's not a guarantee, but it is the, an indication that the, the question is open and it depends on what we do. And I think if we, we steer the right line, we have a real opportunity here to do some of the things that we've tried to do before, but have a different and better result. So let's work on that. Bill, what a, an ideal, optimistic note to end on. Uh, thank you all three very much. Whatever happens, of course, will continue to follow. Uncontroversial to say that the overwhelming majority of those tuned in today and the many wonderful active uh, questions that we had indicates that there is a strong interest uh, from Washington and from the United States in uh, continued strong relations with Moldova. So we'll definitely continue to cover it. Uh, thank you all three again so much. Thanks everybody for tuning in. That's it for now, bye-bye.